You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Two related developments in the news today as I sit down to record this introduction to this week's podcast. Washington Post, ABC News poll shows highest levels ever for support uh, of same-sex marriage, of marriage equality. 59% of Americans now back marriage equality. Only 34% of Americans oppose marriage equality. Over in Europe today, the Pope indicated that while the church still opposes gay marriage, the church might be cool with maybe some form of, you know, civil unions perhaps for same-sex couples, but not marriage. And hearing the Pope say that, particularly after reading the Washington Post-ABC News poll numbers, reminded me of a conversation I had really recently with a friend who is a Bible-believing, born-again Christian. Yes, a friend of mine who is one of those. Um, we have a playful, contentious relationship. We like to debate each other. Uh, we are actually friends. And we're thinking about going on tour in an updated production of The Odd Couple. But my friend asked me if gay people would be willing to settle for, would we compromise, would we take civil unions with all the same, exact same rights, responsibilities, obligations, everything that comes with marriage but not marriage, civil unions. Like if, if a bill was introduced that would legalize civil unions in all 50 states, would we accept that compromise? They would let us have fundamentalist Christian conservatives who oppose marriage equality. They would let us have civil unions in exchange for – I live in Washington State, exchange for us giving marriage back. And I told my friend that, yes, we would so take civil unions in a fucking heartbeat. We would accept civil unions in 1985 if fundamentalist Christians, conservative Christians, Republican Christians, politicized Christians in 1985 at the height of the AIDS epidemic, the height of the AIDS crisis, had stepped up and said, you know, Look at what's happening in AIDS wards. Look at what's happening to these gay male couples. You have guys being dragged out of the hospital room of their dying partner. You have men being turned away from the funerals of their partners, guys they had been with for 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years. You have men being dragged away, barred from the funeral of their own partners. You have guys being evicted from the homes they shared with their dead partners by vengeful, vindictive, greedy biological family members. And many of those men being evicted from their homes are themselves dying and sick. If fundamentalist Christians then, 1985, had looked at those at that injustice, that was all about same-sex couples having no legal rights, no legal protections and said, you know what, whatever else we think about gay sex or homosexual acts – this is vicious and cruel and unchristian, what is being done to these men. And they need to be protected from these cruelties. And so, civil unions. Let's get the president, Ronald Reagan, that we helped to elect. Let's call our congressman who we got into Congress and took over the Republican Reagan revolution. Let's get our guys in the White House and in Congress to push through a civil unions package. We would have accepted that compromise. In 1980, fucking five. 
That is not what conservative fundamentalist Christians did in 1985. They did a victory dance. They celebrated and welcomed the AIDS epidemic and the AIDS crisis. They said it was God's judgment. They said that this pain and suffering was deserved, that we had welcomed it, that we had courted it, that we had it coming. And it was only a taste of the pain and suffering that we would endure in hell after our deaths. That was what they said. And it really was for so many gay rights activists, for so many people who witnessed that, those horrors, those injustices, it really was the AIDS epidemic that inspired and energized and has kind of informed. It's just in the DNA of the movement for marriage equality is that that shared cultural memory of what it was to have no rights, no protections for our relationships. It drove the push for marriage rights. And now that we're winning, now that it's clear with each new court case, as each state falls into line, as countries like France and Scotland and New Zealand approve marriage equality, now that it's clear that we are fucking winning, here comes the Pope saying, okay, mm, civil unions. And I'm here to remind you, my listeners, and I'm here to remind the Pope in case he's listening – that this civil unions thing that you're willing to give us now that we're getting marriage, you opposed that pretty fucking recently. Civil unions came first to Vermont. Vermont state Supreme Court ruling ordered the legislature to allow gay people to marry or create some mechanism that gave us the same rights as marriage and the compromise that the Vermont legislature came up with, civil unions. This was to keep us from marriage, civil unions. You know who opposed civil unions in Vermont? The Catholic Church. Now that people can get legally married in Vermont, the Catholic Church supports civil unions on the condition that we give marriage back. That's what they're saying, right? Here's the deal. Okay, now that you're winning marriage everywhere, we'll give you this thing we didn't used to want you to have. We'll give you this thing that we used to oppose with the same intensity and these same apocalyptic terms that we now oppose, gay marriage. We'll give you that in exchange for you giving us back what you've won, which is full civil equality. No deal, Pope Francis. That's what I said to my friend who was I was debating with on, on, on the phone about would we accept civil unions in place? No, no deal. You backed us into a corner. We came out swinging. We fought for this. We won it. It's almost over. You are not in a position to negotiate a compromise where we give back the full civil equality that we have already won in states like Washington and we are winning across the country. Nice to see that the Pope is backing civil unions. Wish the Pope had a time machine and a Pope, if not this Pope, had backed civil unions for same-sex couples in 1985. That, if fundamentalist Christians, conservative Christians, if Pope Christians had looked at what was being done to gay couples in 1985 and come out for civil unions and owned it and pushed it, that might have taken the gas and the wind out of the sails of the movement for marriage equality. Marriage equality might not have come to Washington State and Illinois and New York and New Jersey and Vermont and Connecticut and Hawaii and California and New Mexico and coming soon to a state near you, if conservative Christians had done that, if they had behaved in a Christian way, if they had responded in a loving and Christian way to the AIDS epidemic, they did not. And here we are now and we are winning. We have won. Now is not the time for compromise. 
Anyway, Pope Francis, nice thought. A few decades late, but we appreciate your evolution on this issue. Uh, that said, it's really important. I, I am Catholic, culturally Catholic. My family is Catholic, not just culturally, most of them. Um, it's important to emphasize that when it comes to marriage equality, Catholics support marriage equality and full civil equality for LGBT people at higher rates than any other religious denomination in this country. Catholics are pro-gay marriage. When you meet a Catholic, the odds that you're speaking to someone who is for same-sex marriage is higher than you when you meet anybody else who's a Christian in the United States. So I'm beating up on the Pope a little bit, but I'm not beating up on Catholics. You got our backs. We appreciate it. Hey, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old guy in a long-term relationship. And my girlfriend and I have uh, expressed curiosity about uh, exploring the same sex with each other. And we're both very uh, accepting of, of each other's curiosity and want to help each other explore it even more. She's had a really easy time with this. And I have not had an easy of a time. I don't really know what I'm looking for. I mean, I'm uh, really attracted to the ideas of sex with another man. But I don't know what I'm looking for in another man. And I've never really met another guy that really turned me on outside of a porn. So I'm looking for some kind of general advice as to a good, safe way for me to kind of explore my curiosity. Whenever anyone says they're going to go on a same-sex exploration, I always think of that 1966 movie Fantastic Voyage where they shrink people down and they put them in somebody's body and they float around and they explore. It just sounds so weird. I'm going on an exploration. It's like when people say that experimenting with same-sex sex or experimenting with bisexuality or whatever. You're doing something because it turns you on and you want to do it. You're not going on an exploration. This is not outward bound. You're not – hiking in the Andes in fucking Peru. You want to suck some cock. You mentioned the name of some dude that you wanted to explore, but you muttered it and we couldn't quite make it out. We listened a few times and it sounds to me like you're saying Michael Pollan, author of Omnivore's Dilemma and In Defense of Food and other books, but probably not that dude. But it seems to me and I don't want to – you know, God knows I don't want there to be fewer men out there having sex with men. But if there really is only one man in the whole world that you're attracted to and you're not attracted to other dudes, is it really a same-sex exploration that you want to go on? Is that the outward bound trip you should book yourself on? If there is just one dude, if you look around at all the other dudes in the world and you think, meh, and then there's this one dude, that means there's the one exception. That dude, whoever that dude was, Michael Pollan or whoever, is your lesbian firefighter. I've talked before about my lesbian firefighter. There's a lesbian firefighter or there was in Seattle who looked so much like a dude that it was kind of like I could – yeah, mm, she like pinged for me in this weird way. Like I could see myself maybe tiptoeing up to that. I could see myself exploring the lesbian firefighter, maybe experimenting on the lesbian firefighter and this dude works for you in that particular and peculiar way that perhaps one guy in your life might for a straight guy kind of – Hang on to your sex dar and work for you and turn you on in this way that's just so aberrant. That's perhaps too loaded a word, too pejorative, but dissimilar from all your other turn-ons. And what should you infer from that? Well, 
maybe you're not really interested in a same-sex exploration. Maybe you're just interested in that one particular dude that you can never have. So while your wife is out there exploring some same-sex experiences, maybe you should explore some experiences with folks who are the same sex that your wife is. Maybe that's the extracurricular that you should be allowed. Otherwise, if you just want general advice about how to find dick as a dude, as a 28-year-old dude, it's pretty easy. Dick is easy to come by. Dick is out there in abundance. Dick is like asparagus in spring. I had to ask one of the tech savvy at-risk vegetarian youth when asparagus comes in because I don't fucking know. All I know about asparagus is that it ruins a good water sports scene. That's all I know about asparagus. When it pops out of the ground, I can't tell you. But the tech savvy at-risk vegetarian youth do. Pardon me. I'm getting the glare. Vegan. Vegan. Sorry. Vegan, vegan. I can never keep that straight either. Anyway, caller, you want some dick, hang out a shingle. By which I mean get online, get on Craigslist, get on Dudes Nude, get on Jacked, get on Grinder, get on Recon, get on whatever site appeals scruff to your particular type and needs and desires and the dick will come. That's what dick does. Hi, Dan. This is a uh, 21-year-old straight male in a conservative western city. I uh, have a question. It's not about me. It's about a friend and a colleague of mine. I was recently on a trip with a friend. I'm a musician, and this friend is someone I play with. And as I was using his computer, I uh, threw some shitty, not-okay snooping, came across some searches that I found really troubling as this guy is in a relationship. He was searching for things like, you know, find a hot date in X city we were in and um, our straight people on Grindr. And eventually he was looking up call girl services in the city. Now, uh, I know that he's cheated on this woman that he's in a relationship with in the past. And when I confronted him about this, uh, he brushed it off saying he was just curious about looking up a call girl, basically. Um, I don't really buy it. And, uh, I just, I really don't know what to do. Should I tell his girlfriend, someone who I know, I'm not super close with, um, this would mean essentially destroying my relationship with him. I could go to him first, I guess, and tell him what I'm going to do, or that, you know, he should tell her or I will. It is the, the fact that it's me knowing this in the first place is based on my violating his privacy, essentially, that kind of disqualified, you know, I mean, should I, should I say nothing? Should I you know, just try to talk to him about it, even though I already did. I just, I'm, I'm really at a loss and it's, you know, it's uh, causing me a lot of angst. I'm just not sure what to do, what would be best for her. Well, speaking of dicks, you don't buy it, you say. His excuse, this dude's excuse about why he was looking up escorts online. No one was trying to sell it to you. You don't have to buy it. It's none of your fucking business. What this guy does. You've made it your business by violating his privacy by snooping. Now you know something you can't unknow and you feel all torn and tormented. Well, you are responsible for your own misery in this moment. And I'm just going to go out on a limb here and I'm just going to guess that you want to fuck this dude's girlfriend. I'm just going to guess that there's some poisonous jealousy at work here. Maybe he has better luck with the ladies. Maybe you've been into his girlfriend for a long time and – you got the drop on him. You have the goods now. You have the ability to destroy his relationship and play the white knight, play the savior and come in and 
help her pick up the pieces of her shattered vagina with your dick. Who do you think you are? You're that dude in the Mormon anti-masturbation commercial who bursts in on his roommate who's just watching some porn and jacking it. Oh, no, but you've got to swoop in and rescue your roommate from his own right hand and a little bit of online. But you've got to swoop in and rescue this poor dude from what? From an email exchange with a prostitute, with a sex worker, from a moment or two checking out some sex worker websites? That's what you're rescuing him from? I'm at a loss for what to tell you because what this guy is doing, if he's fucking around on his girlfriend and he has a monogamous commitment to her, is wrong. If I were her and someone knew this, someone that I knew and that I was on friendly terms with and I had made a monogamous commitment to this musician, always a dubious proposition, but I'd made a a monogamous commitment to this musician and I was being played and cheated on and someone I knew knew, I would want that person probably to clue me in. So you face this moral dilemma now because you are a dick policing, busybody, shitty snoop who's probably trying to get into – this girl's pants. But that's a guess. I'm just guessing you're probably trying to get into this girl's pants. So what do you do? Well, you know, you probably have to go and tell her. And it will destroy your relationship with your bandmate, which is a favor you will be doing your bandmate because he really does need you out of his life because you're not a good friend. You are no more a trustworthy friend than he is a trustworthy boyfriend. You are both shitty. And you both will be better off without each other in each other's lives. And hopefully he'll learn a lesson about putting a password on his fucking computer and maybe not fucking around because eventually this shit comes out and it gets back to people and there are hurt feelings and relationships crack up. And you'll learn a lesson about not going and looking for information that creates a moral obligation and burden on you about business that is not your fucking business. All that said, he could be telling the truth. We hear all the time about people who are on Craigslist, who are on different kinds of dating sites, uh, hookup sites, who bitching about all the fakers and trolls out there, all the picture collectors. Talk to escorts. Talk to prostitutes and they will tell you that half the calls they get, half the emails they get or more are from people who are not interested in actually booking them, who are just time wasters, who want to interact with somebody, want to have a little sexy conversation, want really them to do online or on the phone. A little sex work for free. That's why experienced sex workers are limit those kinds of preliminary conversations because they don't want their time wasted. That's not why they're doing sex work, to have their time wasted. They're doing sex work to be compensated for their time. So it is possible – That he was just out of town and looking around because it's sexy. Maybe he's got a little hooker fantasy and checking out the local sex workers, turns him on and he cranks one out and then he's done. He could be telling the truth. You could be the only lying sack of shit in that room that night. It's possible. Do what you got to do and then stay the fuck away from other people's email accounts, computers, cell phones, private lives, girlfriends, inner lives, erotic lives. Not your fucking business. Hi, Dan. I just got this letter from my best friend with whom I have not spoken in a couple months despite my efforts. It's addressed to me and it says, as you know, I chose to start recovering from various addictive habits this past July and working on my own personal growth. And as part of that plan, I am choosing to abstain from communicating with any of my female friends for the for the foreseeable future. I make this choice only after consultation with a number of men who I trust 
and I do not take it lightly. I ask respectfully that you not contact me or any members of my family until I let you know that I am ready. I hope you understand. Until then, I wish you the best. Since you are the location from which I have heard so much about the non-existence of sex addiction, I would love for you to give me some advice about, do I just let him do this and let it take its course and just not have a best friend for a few months? Or what do I do? Joining me by phone to help answer this question, Dr. Marty Klein. He's been a licensed marriage and family therapist and a sex therapist for over 30 years. He's written seven books, including The New Sexual Intelligence, What We Really Want from Sex and How to Get It. You can read his blog at www.sexed.org. Before we get to this letter that the, the caller got from her best friend uh, and you know her feelings of loss and what she's supposed to do now or next, can you talk briefly about the sex addiction model? And what's wrong with it? Oh, I'd be happy to. You know, there's a lot of pain about people who feel out of control about their sexual behavior. And we need to be very sympathetic about that. And there's also a lot of pain about people who don't quite understand how they make the sexual decisions that they do. And we really need to pay a lot of attention to that. But the sex addiction model... um, is a bad approach to both of those things. It assumes that sexual behavior is about sex rather than other things like power or guilt or anger or uh, identity confusion. Well, wait, wait, wait. Can sex ever be about sex? Is sex always about power, anger, confusion? Sex is about sex too, often. Right? Well, you know that you, you know there's that old saying, everything in the world is about sex except sex, which is about power. But um, I think sometimes sex is about sex, but when people are distressed about their sexuality, when people mm-hmm. are distressed about how they use sex in their lives, um, the context of people's decision-making and behavior is really the thing that has them upset. Mm-hmm. So, so w- when, people, when people talk about, I keep, I keep making the same sexual mistakes over and over again, or when people say, I keep doing stuff sexually that doesn't work for me. We need to look at what is the meaning of the behavior. We need to look right. at how, how are people feeling when they're making their decisions. Okay, so, you, feel- so you're, not, you're not saying sex for everyone is always about confusion and anger and power. No, but, but, no, when no, some, no. but when someone feels out of control or they're being immiserated by their own sex lives, then we need to ask what's going on? What are you using sex for? Why is sex this tool that you're harming yourself with? What's the other issue, the deeper issue? That's what you're arguing. I am definitely saying that, and I'm saying one more thing, or I would need to say one more thing, which is that when when people say that they're out of control sexually, when people say, I feel out of control sexually, that doesn't mean that they actually are out of control. You know, when people say, I feel out of control, what they actually mean is, I make decisions and I don't like the consequences. Mm -hmm. Most people, most people, you know, people who have multiple extramarital affairs or people who do a lot of cruising and then they're they're sorry afterwards, they're not out of control. Um, Mostly, they just don't want to deal with the pain that they would have to deal with if they did not engage in that sexual behavior, whether the pain is the pain of loneliness or whether the pain is the pain of guilt or whether the pain is the pain of I need touching or I need validation. So when people say I feel out of control sexually, what they, what they typically mean, what they typically mean is, you know, when I don't do this, uh, this troubling behavior, I don't like the way I feel. 
Mm-hmm. And as a result, I, I, I keep doing the troubling behavior. But the question is, if you don't do that tro- troubling behavior, how do you feel and what do you want to do about that? What do you want to do about the loneliness or what do you want to do about the, the way you're expressing resentment all over the place? Or for that matter, what do you want to do about the fact that you feel like the only thing you have to offer the world is sex? Mm-hmm. What about the argument that when it comes to the sex addiction model and the porn addiction model that there's some stigmatization here of people with high libidos? Like some people have low libidos. Some people have middling. Some people have high. And it does seem when you read about sex addiction and you read about porn addiction that it's every – it's like the moral judgment being made, that there's a right amount of sex to have and you're having too much sex. Yes. Not only does the sex addiction model say there's a right amount, it says there's a right kind. So the sex addiction people are terribly, terribly upset about S&M, for example. Mm-hmm. Anybody who's engaged, any, anybody who likes to be spanked, anybody who likes to um, be involved in consensual S&M, um, the sex addiction model really does not have room for that. The, the sex addiction model is sort of moralism dressed up in, in clinical, uh, clinical robes. You talk to scientists, you talk to researchers, and nobody puts much stock in, in, in science land in the sex addiction, porn addiction shit. How has it a- obtained such cultural weight and currency? Well, for starters, let's remember that um, the addiction model has been around for, for decades, and there's a pre-existing infrastructure. There are there's literature, there are, there are groups, there's language, there's everything already in place. Um, and in 1986, when Patrick Corns wrote Out of the Shadows, and he, uh, he spoke about the feelings that people have about being out of control sexually, people just flock to this pre-existing structure. Um, and a lot of the early sex addicts or people who identified themselves as sex addicts they had already been involved in the 12-step program. So mm-hmm. they said, oh, great. It's a chance to work the 12 steps again. How fabulous is that? Part of what um, makes the sex addiction model so popular for people is that there's a pre-existing world that they can fit into. And it's, it's really appealing on a narcissistic level because you walk into a room and everybody says, oh, Joseph, We've been waiting for you. We don't know you, but we've been waiting for you. We don't know you, but we love you. We don't know you, but you are one of us. Come on over here. Let's all give you a hug. Now, there's a lot of people that that feels just a tremendous relief for. So have you heard of anything like this before where someone who is struggling with quote-unquote sex addiction and is you know walking these 12 steps has uh, you know, been, been swept up by this addiction framework that existed that has had sex slapped onto it. Uh, writing this kind of letter to, to a friend, to a female friend saying, I'm a sex addict. You're a bottle of vodka. You're kryptonite. I can't be around you because of my sex addiction. Leave me the fuck alone. Is this something that is done? I've never heard of this before. You know, I tell you the honest truth. I've never heard of this before. What I have heard is I can't go to certain places. I can't watch certain movies. I can't – I have heard I can't be alone because I might masturbate. Um, but I've never heard I have to stay with it, stay away from anybody with a vagina. I've never heard that. And I would say um, that anybody who tells anybody stay away from anybody with a vagina, I wouldn't trust that person. Um, the fact that he's willing to take this advice really proves – 
that he has something else going on besides sex addiction because, or whatever we want to call it. Because um, if, if, you, if, if you give this advice to anybody who's got their head screwed on straight and you say you have to stay away from your best friend, you have to stay away from the person who has nourished you and, and validated you and helped you through life. Um, if you say that to somebody with their head screwed on straight, they would say, no, thank you. They would say, I would like the rest of the help that you want to give me, but I'm not going to take your advice to stay away from my best friend. I've said for years that part of the problem with the sex addiction model is that they don't do a differential diagnosis of anybody walking in. They don't say, are you depressed? Are you obsessive compulsive? Do you have borderline personality problems? Are you struggling with the side effects of medications? This guy who says to his best friend and not even giving her the courtesy of a phone call, you know, mm -hmm. in a letter, how cold is that? If the point of recovering from sex addiction is to be a warm, loving, authentic person, this is not the way to do it, right? Yeah, and we, uh, we would say that if, you know, if this is a counselor who told him to do this, this is sex addiction counseling. If this was a friend or a romantic partner who told him to isolate himself like this from – love and support and the people in his life, we would identify that as an abusive behavior. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it sounds suspiciously like, like a cult, doesn't it? I'm not saying it is a cult, but it sure sounds like one. Dr. Marty Klein, he is a licensed marriage and family therapist and a sex therapist for over 30 years, written seven books, including Sexual Intelligence, What We Really Want from Sex and How to Get It. Check out his blog, www.sexed.org. Thanks for jumping on the phone today with us, Dr. Klein. Thanks so much, Dan. Hi, Dan. I have recently started a new relationship with a man who is somewhat large and has a belly bigger than any I've ever dealt with in the bedroom. Uh, my favorite sexual positions are ones in which I'm on top, but because of the size of his belly, we can't find a way to make that work. Uh, like We can't even do doggy style because his stomach reaches out further than his penis. Uh, we always end up having to have sex in missionary, and I feel like he is smothering me the entire time. I've tried to drop little hints to him by eating healthier and exercising around him in an attempt to get him to join me, but at this point, it seems hopeless. I am really not sure how to bring this issue to his attention without hurting his feelings or upsetting him. Uh, my question to you is, the relationship is only a month old, so do I end things now or do I try to talk with him about this? Thank you for your call because this is the kind of call where there's literally nothing I can say that isn't going to get me into trouble with the social justice Twitter brigades. So trigger warning here for social justice Twitter brigades. You can't tell him. That the size at which he – the size he is now, the size that he arrived in this relationship at is unacceptable to you. Um, you're not allowed to say to somebody, uh, you are too fat. You have to lose weight. Uh, this doesn't work for me. You need to diet and exercise because as anyone who's dinked around on fat acceptance blogs can tell you, diet and exercise don't work. People are just the size that they are and you have to love and accept them at the size that they are. And if you're not attracted to big people, why are you dating a big person? Right? If his body doesn't work to you, why are you doing it? I'm also, though, not allowed to tell you and you're not allowed to break up with him because of his size because then that's 
fat shamey discrimination, sex shamey, and we should you should fight against that and be attracted to people of all different sizes. And you know, you are attracted to him at the size that he is. You wouldn't be fucking him if you weren't attracted to him at the size that he is. It sounds like just the mechanics of it, the logistics of it, accommodating your desire for non-missionary, non-smothery sex and his size, shape, belly, penis angle, all of that, that just doesn't work for you. And I think that sexual compatibility and sexual satisfaction are hugely important, particularly at the outset of a potential long-term relationship. And you are allowed, not just allowed to, you are well advised to and I am advising you and everyone else to prioritize sexual compatibility and sexual satisfaction. And if you are not sexually satisfied for whatever reason at a month, I think that you have a right to pull the plug. Regard whatever reason. This isn't necessarily just about size, whatever reason. Don't like the way he kisses, don't like the way your bodies fit together. Chemically, you don't work, you clash, your lovemaking styles are out of sync. He's kind of subby and you're kind of dom and you want him to be dom and you're subby, like whatever. You have a right to say, sexually, this isn't working for me. So sexually, we're not a match and I'm out of here. It's hard for someone to hear. All that said, there are bolsters, there are slings, there are ways to re-angle your body and have pseudo-missionary position sex in such a way where he is standing and you are laying back or you are angled back. Slings are kind of amazing things and there are sex furniture sites out there, particularly for large or disabled people that might help you find a way to work around the smother thing and the angle thing and the belly thing. Well, at the same time, perhaps you could encourage him to change up his diet and exercise routine because that is actually related to size. Thinking about diet and exercise, being proactive about diet and exercise is not going to turn everyone into a size zero lady or a shredded Adonis dude. People come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. So you could say that to him. But you really can't make the condition you arrived in this relationship in is unacceptable to me and it must change or I am leaving. Even if that is kind of what you will be saying if you leave because physically, logistically, the sex is unsatisfying to you because of the condition that he arrived in this relationship in. At a month, you kind of have a right to pull the plug for arbitrary, even shallow reasons. But don't tell anyone I told you that. Hi, Dan. I am a 31-year-old straight female um, from Los Angeles, and I'm calling because I have a wonderful, wonderful boyfriend. Uh, we've been together about eight months, best relationship of my life. Um, we have wonderful sex. I'm happy in every way. Um, we both want marriage and children. We've talked about that. I think it's definitely moving in that direction probably in the next year. And um, we're planning a trip with his family to Mexico next Christmas and New Year's, and he really wants me to invite my family. Uh, the problem is his family smokes quite a bit of weed. Uh, my family most definitely does not. My parents growing up never even drank alcohol, and only after we were out of the house started having a glass or two of wine. 
So my question is this. One, how do I talk to my partner about this? Um, I don't want to offend him. I don't want to hurt his feelings. I don't want to make him feel like I'm judging his family. I have no problem with it. I do occasionally with him, um, and they should be able to do whatever it is that they want to do on vacation. Two, how do I talk to my family about it, you know, in a way that's respectful of their lifestyle choices and my boyfriend's family's? Or three, do I just not go there and not invite my family at all, just knowing this kind of big difference? I'm going to be uncharacteristically brief. Uh, you've planned this vacation with your boyfriend and his family. It might be a nice opportunity for your family to meet his family if you guys are getting serious about each other. So you invite your family, invite your folks, and then you say – you know, by the way, mom and dad, uh, my boyfriend and his parents, uh, they're pot smokers. They don't have a problem. They're not addicts. They're, they hold down jobs. They're responsible people, but they enjoy marijuana. If that's going to bother you and ruin the trip for you, you might not want to come. Just lob it into their court. If they have such an issue with marijuana use, they shouldn't come on this trip. If it's going to spoil it for them or if they're going to be towering dicks to your boyfriend and his parents because they're getting stoned. But who knows? Maybe mom and dad will come around. Maybe they'll come on the trip and they'll see other people their own age enjoying marijuana responsibly, getting a little buzz, kicking back, enjoying the daiquiris and whatever else and the beach food and decide to give it a shot themselves. They may surprise you. Sometimes we underestimate our parents. You're in your early 30s. Your parents then are probably in their mid-50s, which means they were in their 20s in the 80s. People were smoking pot in the 80s. It's possible that your parents have been potheads all your life, but they wanted to set a good example for you and your siblings if you have any and they never used or let you know that they use marijuana because they didn't want you to start using marijuana early, earlier than a kid should. So parents sometimes have hidden depths. Give them a chance to surprise you. Hi, my name is Michael. About six months ago, uh, I asked a religious member of my family if he would be willing to be part of my wedding and be one of my groomsmen. I also asked if his children would be my uh, ring bearers. Um, at the time, he told me yes and that he was comfortable with it. Uh, but the other day, I got a call from him where he decided to take a moral stand uh, and tell me that although he wanted to be at my wedding, he could no longer support me uh, because God told him that it was wrong. And so he pulled out of my wedding party, and he also pulled his kids out of uh, their ring bearer responsibility. So something I can understand uh, and empathize with. Uh, however, uh, he furthermore told me that he didn't want his kids even coming to my wedding. Uh, he says he still wants to be at the wedding because he wants to try and preserve our relationship, but that, um, that he just can't support what I'm doing. I don't know how to make him see how much it hurts to be told that the choice that you're making to want to spend the rest of your life with somebody that you love compared to something that he needs to protect his children from is very harmful. The question I'm calling to ask you after I listen to your call is this. Why did you invite this conservative religious member of your family to participate in your wedding in the first place. That seemed to me, listening to your call, a little bit like putting a kick me sign on your back and then being surprised when you got kicked. Uh, well, you know, um, I do love my brother. I love him quite a bit. Uh, but the thing is, for a long time, uh, I thought that his beliefs had changed because 
Um, you know, when I had been around my boyfriend, uh, when I brought him down home for uh, Christmas this last year, mm-hmm. uh, they were the ones who really stuck up for me. Um, a lot of other people in my family uh, said things like, oh, you're being too gay and everything. And mm. this brother actually stood up for me and said, um, you know, just be who, be who you are and everything. And so it came as quite a shock to me. Uh, when he pulled this on me because I really just wasn't expecting this to come from him anymore. You know, I knew growing up okay. that he'd had very fundamental beliefs, but not anymore. Okay, well, that, that makes sense then. And, and I'm sorry uh, to have asked the question. I'm sorry for the pain this has caused you. It seems to me, though, that you need to tell your brother that he shouldn't come to your wedding. Uh, to You say he wants, you know, he doesn't want to support what you're doing, but showing up at someone's wedding is to support what they're doing. Your presence is your approval of the match of the marriage. And if he doesn't approve, he shouldn't come. And if he thinks your marriage is a threat to his children in some existential crazy ass fashion, then he definitely shouldn't come. I I would tend to agree. Um, And that's kind of where I've, I've been landing on my thinking uh, is just, you know, I mean, if he's going to be there and detracting from the day, but I, you know what I, what I would do if I were you for like the long-term sort of arc of your relationship, which hopefully bends towards justice as they say, I wouldn't disinvite him. Don't bar him from the wedding. Just say I would yeah. like – it would mean a lot to me if you were there. But being there means you support what I'm doing. Please don't come if you can't support what I'm doing. We don't go to weddings of people that we don't support the match. We don't support – the love we don't support that commitment so you know even if i'm getting married it's a civil ceremony there's nothing religious about it uh if you can't wrap your head around supporting my civil right to marry this man in a civil ceremony don't come because then it's on him you haven't barred him you haven't created any additional uh, erroneous uh, extra credit drama by forbidding your brother to come to your wedding. The invitation still stands, but bro, you got to know that when you walk through the door at my wedding, you're supporting what I'm doing. And then see, yeah. if, and then see if he shows up with that understanding that showing up means you support what I'm doing. If he shows up, then you've made a little bit of progress there. One would hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One would hope. And, and one of the things that hopefully he'll see when he shows up is other you, other friends, other family, if not family, then friends there with their children. Other yeah, exactly. Because we're going to be having, you know, 10 or 20 kids at the wedding of people who do support us. So maybe it would be good for your brother's eyes to be opened in that way. Maybe he's on a journey like so much of the country has been on a journey around this issue. Maybe he's evolving. And this uh, attending even without his children, if you guys can swallow that insult – means that maybe his children will be at your 10th anniversary party or maybe his children one day will speak to their uncles and say, "We're, you know, that, that was stupid what our dad did. That was stupid. We wish we had been there. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I kind of have one other concern about the wedding in general, which is what do I do if he does show up and says something detracting about the wedding? Hmm. You arm all your other groomsmen with pink silly string. <laughs> and they just fucking attack him with pink silly string if he says something <laughs> shitty about your marriage. That would take a special kind of shitbag to show up at a wedding knowing that means the, – the, the line has been laid down. Your presence means you support 
what I'm doing. You support my relationship. You support this marriage. And if he shows up and then like wants to get on the microphone and say, just so everyone knows, I do not support this. Yeah. That, that really is the end of your relationship with your brother. I would have to agree. And that's one of the things I'm afraid of, right? Is well, do you want that. it in your life if, if he would take a shit on you like that at your wedding? Why are you afraid? Of, no. Why are you afraid of that? That that seems like calling the question. Like, you're with me or you're against me. And if you're against me, then get away from me. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. Congratulations on your wedding. Don't let this poison them. You thank know? you so much. I have relatives who family didn't come to their wedding at all, and there was just tons of strife and drama and bullshit. Irish Catholics, drunks. You know how it goes. Just yeah. don't let this ruin your day for you. Um, focus on the people who are there, your biological family members who are there, and as Armistead Maupin would say, your logical family members who are there. Bask in their love. <laughs> Do not obsess about your brother's inability to love you at this time, to love yeah. you the way that he should, to love you the way that you love him. That's a problem yeah. of his. Don't make it a problem of yours. Thank you. You're welcome. Congratulations. Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old straight woman from the Twin Cities, and I need your help with something. Um, I'm currently studying for the MCAT, which is really, really stressful, and I find that to be productive, I have to study outside my house, so I spend a lot of time in coffee shops with my nose in the books. While I study, I've noticed a very interesting and frustrating cultural phenomenon, something about me being in deep and evident concentration, having my nose two inches away from the page, has invited straight men to approach me and try and strike up a conversation. So I'm way too Minnesotan to say, you know, I don't really have time for um, fostering new relationships right now, be they romantic or platonic. And frankly, I don't have time to talk to a stranger for an hour in a coffee shop. Um, so I'm wondering, can you put words in my mouth? How do I kind of dismiss them without coming off as too unfriendly? I get that women are socialized to never say no to a man, to be deferential, to find these really strained workarounds where you can reject him, where you can say no, where you can tell him to go away without actually rejecting him, saying no, or telling him to go away. You have to ovary up and look at the dude and say, I'm studying for an exam. I really don't have much time. I don't have any time right now. Thanks. And then he goes the fuck away. If you can't say no, what he wants, the guy who approaches you at that moment, he wants to put his penis in you and you have to say no at some point or you're going to be getting fucked on the table at the coffee shop eventually, which you don't want. But if you are too Minnesota nice to look at a dude and say, I'm studying for an exam, please leave me alone. Or I'm studying for an exam and I don't have time to talk right now. Thanks. With finality, not I'm studying for an exam. I don't really have much time to talk right now. But was there something you wanted to – no open-ended anything at the end. I'm studying for an exam. No time to talk. Thank you. Period. The end. Risk being unlikable. You don't want to be liked by that guy in that moment. Better that guy dislikes you. Oh, but what if he calls you a bitch? What if he calls you a bitch and walks away? Fuck him. You have a right in that moment to be a bitch if he can't look at you studying deep in concentration, your nose two inches from the book, without thinking, 
what she needs is my penis. That's what she needs right now. That's what that nose two inches from a book thing cries out for. What she needs is dick. If you can't do that, if you can't bring yourself to do that because of your socialization, because of Minnesota, this is what you do. Hoodies and headphones. That, that is the secret to my productivity. Some people will listen to your call and say she should study at home or she should study at the library. I find something about a coffee shop or a bar to be very conducive to getting work done. There's just something about the environment, the noise, the chaos that for me is very focusing. So I get what you mean about that. If I don't disguise myself, particularly in the city where I live, I have people coming up to me asking me questions about rimming, people coming up to me asking me questions about sexually transmitted infections, people coming up to me, literally this has happened, to ask me to identify the sores on their genitalia. It doesn't happen when I have my hoodie up and my headphones in. Hoodie up, headphones in has become, for even dense idiots, the international symbol of fuck off, leave me the fuck alone. And I'll tell you a secret. 80% of the time when I have my headphones in, there's no music playing. I'm not listening to anything. I'm just saying fuck the fuck off, leave me the fuck alone. I'm like you a little bit. I am, I'm, believe it or not, I'm kind of polite. I'm kind of deferential. I'm kind of a girl in that way. So when I talk about this shit, I feel your pain. Right? I have a hard time saying no to men, particularly men named Terry Miller. So sometimes I go to bed with my hoodie on and my headphones in so that Terry can't ask me for anything. Give it a try. Hi, Dan. This is a 27-year-old bi lady calling from um, abroad. I'm actually calling about a close friend of mine who is 30 and strict. When we met, um, I was a freshman and she was a senior in college, and we were both virgins. I had just gotten out of a kind of creepy, fundy Christian phase, and she was pretty much a, a school maniac, and she didn't really go out much. So today, um, or not, not today, but recently she turned 30, and she's still a virgin, while I, on the other hand, thankfully, got out of my Christian crap and started having sex and enjoyed it quite a lot. So a couple of years ago, she moved across the country for grad school, and I went abroad, um, but we've kept in touch. And she came to stay with me last summer because she wanted me, or partly because she wanted me to help her lose her virginity, because she wanted to, quote, get it out of the way. So I took her to bars and other events. Um, I introduced her to some of my single guy friends, and somebody was interested in her um, out of those, that group of friends, but um, nothing ever happened. So we had many, many long and difficult conversations about um, you know, how she could meet people and how she could fuck people. And she kept saying it was about her shyness or her tendency to put herself in the role of confidant instead of just fucking somebody. And I think she's right. But I also think there's more going on, and that's why I'm calling. As somebody who considers herself um, a strong feminist, I'm wondering if my advice was totally wrong. To be perfectly honest, she's not the hottest lady in the room. However, I think she's really, she, she could be really attractive. It's just that she doesn't really, in my opinion, make the effort to please um, in the way that she presents herself. While she does dress well, her clothes are kind of on the androgynous side and she often gets, people think she's a lesbian, which is totally cool and all that. But at the same time, it's not perhaps the best strategy if she wants to be fucking guys. Also, she um, has things like a mustache um, and a quite 
impressive unibrow um, that she does not trim or shape in any way. She never wears makeup. And the problem with all of that is that I feel like those things give the impression that she doesn't really care um, about her personal appearance. And it's not that she's against doing those things. It's more that she doesn't like the idea that women are, quote, supposed to do such things. And I understand where she's coming from with that. I just think that if her goal is to get her virginity out of the way, that she's going to have to kind of do those things to give her the the chance to meet a a wider variety of people. But she just really doesn't like this idea of conforming to expectations. I I totally get it that maybe in the long term she'd want to be with somebody who really loves her her untouched unibrow, but as she just wants to fuck right now, I just, I, I, I don't really know what to tell her when she says, like, don't touch my unibrow or I will slap you. You can reassure your friend that there are guys out there who like sort of lesbian vibing, unibrowed, mustachioed ladies, uh, but they're pretty thin on the ground. So thin on the ground that your friend is 30 now and she hasn't met one yet. I'm going to back way the fuck up and I'm going to sort of pivot to a conversation I once had with a gay dude. So we're not going to make this about men and women uh, and your gender wars. Let's make it about gay dudes and and conforming, right? This guy couldn't get laid to save his life, couldn't get laid to save his life, bitched and bitched and bitched to me about it. He's a friend and he had long, incredibly straggly, kind of coarse, ugly hair down to his waist and this long scraggly goatee that he had weaved into a little braid knot with a bead in it. And that was who he was, man. And guys should – he wanted to be with a guy who wanted to be with him for who he was and he shouldn't have to conform to the kind of plucked, greased, worked out, gay body fascism shit, Right. And he shouldn't. And he doesn't. He does not have to conform, I told him, to any of those gay beauty standards that so offended him. But it did mean that he was less marketable. It did mean that he would get laid less often. It did mean that there would be fewer guys clamoring as there were for his dick. And not just because – I don't think – not just because all gay men are just shallow, vapid fuckers who want porn stars. There are other – like lots of alterna rocker gay dudes out there, right? And he was even kind of unattractive to them because he made no effort whatsoever at all because making any effort whatsoever at all was conforming. So even dudes who might be into long hair kind of weren't into him because his long hair was fucking fugly and – dry and fly away. It's split out. It just communicated. What his look communicated was, I don't care about my personal appearance. I don't care about how I come across. And all people took from that, all the dudes he met took from that, even dudes who weren't looking for the cliche, gay, shave-titted, greased body, Jim Adonis, what it communicated to them was, I don't care. And that was unattractive. Everything else Put aside. That was on a track. I don't care. I don't care how I come across. I don't care about you. I don't care how you feel about me. I don't care whether you're into me or not. But all people walked away with was, here's a guy who really just doesn't give a shit. And that is unattractive. So when your friend goes out with her mustache, when she goes out with her unibrow, when she goes out in whatever clothes she's going out in, what guys who might be into girls like her are coming away with because there's no effort at all whatsoever is she doesn't care. And that by itself is repulsive, right? People are shallow. 
some people judge people solely on looks. Some people are just looking for people looks. But also something else people are looking for in mates and partners is somebody who gives a shit about them, about themselves, and someone with high emotional IQ and good judgment. And somebody who goes to a sort of meat market pickup bar looking like shit, looking like hell, looking unmarketable, what they're saying in addition to being less marketable in that environment is I have bad judgment. You know, if you want to have the unibrow and you want to look slovenly, there are better places than the meat market college town bar to put yourself out there. But that she's putting herself out there like that in those environments, it says I have bad judgment. And that, irrespective of the unibrow, that, like I don't care, like my friend, that is unattractive. I have bad judgment is unattractive. I think people never talk about this. I really do think that when people out there looking to fuck, even not looking for a mate, just looking for somebody for the night, that part of what you're looking for is somebody reasonably smart, somebody who's not a complete idiot. And what your friend's look says is everything else being equal, kind of an idiot. So there's this line between conforming to beauty standards that are inherently oppressive. I get it. Gay dudes are subjected by other gay dudes to those same beauty standards, right? That's why gay dudes have eating disorders at practically the same rates that women do because we are marketing ourselves to men too and men are visual animals as they say. So there's that line between not wanting to conform and being strategic in how you turn yourself out and being smart about how you turn yourself out knowing what men are and what you are looking for. And there is an exchange there. I want dick. My friend wanted dick. Your friend wants dick. There are a few simple things you could do that don't just up your chances of getting dick because you're conforming to these arbitrary beauty standards. There's a few simple things you can do that up your chances to get dick because what they say is I am smart and strategic and I care and I have good judgment. And that is why I got my fucking unibrow plucked. That is why – I shave my mustache off. That is why this night only I am wearing some relatively flattering, sexy look at me clothes, which isn't just something that women do when they're out there trying to attract men. It is something that gay men do and bi men do when they are out there also trying to attract men. You got to know your market. All that said, if I were you, I would just stop talking to her about this. On some level, she's probably getting off on raking you across the coals about what a shitty, insufficiently feminist feminist you are, right? Because you're giving her this advice to conform. If she's 30 and she hasn't worked this shit out yet, there's nothing you could say or I could say that's going to convince her. She'll meet a blind dude one day and everything will work out just fine. If a U.S. political figure or pundit or right-wing Christian cracktivist said something like this in print, on television, on the radio, anywhere, something like this, this is really kind of a satire on marriage which is being conducted by the gay lobby. It's not that they want to get married, the gays. They want to destroy the institution of marriage because they're envious of it. If someone said that on TV, in a column, we have a word for that person here in America – in the English language, we call that person a homophobe. That's the nice word. That's the polite word. That's the word we would use on television to talk about that person, to describe that person. Homophobe, homophobic. In the green room, if I was on TV with that person, I would call that person a hater and a shit. 
to his face if I had the chance. I would call him that on television if I had the chance. But you can't do that in Ireland. And here to explain why is Panty Bliss. She is Dublin's foremost drag queen and a gay rights activist. And she has blown up over the last month and a half because, Panty, you went on TV and you called a homophobe a homophobe. And what happened next? <laughs> well, I called a few homophobes homophobes. And we don't have, you know, the same freedom of speech laws here that you guys have. So um, I called a number of people, famous journalists and a particular Catholic lobby group, homophobes, and they took great exception to that, and they sued both me and our national television station for defamation for calling them homophobes. Now, when someone says that uh, – this is something that always kind of blows my mind about right-wing anti-gay haters who claim that they're not homophobes. They say we're trying to destroy religion, that we're a danger to children. We're just trying to destroy the family, destroy marriage. We've been blamed for global warming by right-wing fundamentalist Christian batshit nutcases here and hurricanes. And then when you say that's homophobic, they say, how dare you call me a homophobe? If you believe the shit you say about us, you should embrace the term homophobe. You should be afraid of us if you believe we're a danger to family and we cause hurricanes. Why don't these idiot haters in Ireland just embrace the term? What was their problem with it? How could they argue that they're not homophobic? Well, their problem is essentially that their fear is that we, we are gearing up. We have civil partnership here, and we're gearing up towards a referendum for um, you know, same-sex marriage. And their big fear is that if they allow anybody to just constantly you know, point out that they're a homophobe and you know, to reject all their arguments by simply saying, well, you would say that because you're a homophobe, well, then they, their whole arguments will crumble and be revealed you know, to be nothing. So that's their big fear. Their big fear is that they can't allow it to be just publicly said, well, you're a bunch of homophobes because then it's over for them. Because I think in general, you know, the, the level of discourse here isn't quite as hard or sort of divided here as it would be in the U.S., maybe partly because of all of our weird defamation laws, but, but they, they tend here, the home right-wings and the homophobes, they tend to try and coat themselves with a little sugar. Maybe they're not as, they're just not as forceful as the kind you'd be um, used to, maybe. Well, when I hear they want to destroy the institution of marriage because they're envious of it, as if, I, I don't. I don't taste the sugar there. That isn't. That's no. Like, well, he's probably. He, he's probably the most outrageous. Yeah. And that's John Waters, not to be confused with the gay filmmaker here in the yeah, states. I feel John so Waters. So bad for the for our sort of much loved film director. And, he gets you know he gets a lot online by accident. One of the others that you called out by name was uh, a, a woman named Breda O'Brien. Breda. Breda. Yeah. Oh my God! Really, Breda? Yeah, breeder. <laughs> because, of course, breeder is our one and only hate term for heterosexuals. I know, I know. But, we, but you know, heterosexuals, listen, please don't be offended. We appreciate your breeding because without your breeding, there's no us. <laughs> you are the cocoons. We are the butterflies. We rely on you to, to make more of us. Um, but the, her name is Brita? Seriously? Yes, Brita O'Brien. <laughs> and, and, and she has argued that gay people are coming to steal straight people's children. Yeah, well, they're big, you know, she's a member of this um, Catholic lobby group that is, you know, vociferously anti-same-sex marriage. They oppose um, civil partnership. They are also abortion, of course, is their other big thing. Um, but they are constantly harping on the stranger adoption button. I mean, they think that that's the way to persuade people to vote against same-sex marriage. So they constantly bring up this, you know, red herring scare of stranger adoption. That's her big thing. Well, what and by the way, 
For most of these people have you know have weekly columns in our biggest national newspapers and are we regularly appear on television and radio, you know, on panel shows and talk shows and discussion shows. I mean, they are the media go to them all the time. Okay, so uh, as if theirs is sort of one half of a balanced argument, rather than their opinion being actually you know a fringe sort of view. Okay, so what happened is after you did this interview on RTE, which is a state-owned television channel in Ireland, where you described accurately these homophobes as homophobes, I would have added, added homophobic little slimy shits, but you described them as homophobes, you unpacked their homophobia, and then you were sued, the television station was sued, the television station immediately caved and paid them a settlement out of everyone's tax dollars, including yours. Yes. And then what happened next? How did, how did you become this international sensation? Well, what happened was, for the first few weeks, the television station, RT, our version of the BBC, they took down my interview from online and and all of the national newspapers and radio stations, they were afraid to discuss the issue either because everyone was afraid of these defamation suits that are flying around. So for a few weeks, very little was said publicly about it, except for online, of course. And then the television station paid out 85,000 euros to these people. And then a few days after that, I was asked to give a speech at our national theater and in the context of everything that was going on. And those two things, A, the speech that I gave was seen by many people on YouTube, but also when the regular ordinary Irish person found out how much money the television station paid these people to, you know, to drop their lawsuits, that really offended most people. You know, the average ordinary Irish person was very offended at the amount of money that was paid out. And those two things turned it all around for me, and I went from being sort of a, a fringe hate figure <laughs> to being, you know, a cause celebre or a sort of a national treasure. <laughs> now, this speech is amazing. If you haven't seen it, listeners, you got to go to YouTube uh, and look for Panty's Noble Call at the Abbey Theatre. Uh, there's over 500,000 views now, which is just huge. And the speech is, it has been described as the finest speech in the English language in a hundred years. It is, what you've done with this speech, Panty, is so beautiful and and and, and, and shattering and, and ennobling and that you discuss not just the homophobia of our enemies, um, but also our own internalized homophobia, what homophobia is and isn't, and you unpack what's been done to you. The, this idea that the true victims, as you say in the speech, the true victims of homophobia are homophobes now. That to be called a homophobe is so shattering that you're the victim of homophobia. You're, I, I can't do the speech justice in a summary. Um, and I want to thank you for, for delivering it and delivering it in drag. Yes. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have remarked on that, but... I mean, I gave it the speech in drag for a couple of reasons. Partly just because I had a show to go to directly after giving the speech, <laughs> so there was a kind of a, a boring, prosaic reason for it. But more importantly, that the whole speech is about yeah, about being who you are, not being afraid to be who you are, and the effects of homophobia and all that. So I felt it would be hypocritical of me, you know, to shy away from doing it in the way that I would I feel most most comfortable doing it. And I do feel most comfortable in public, you know, in drag. That's how I make my living. You know, I'm used to being on a stage in drag. Um, and also, I think in the long run, although some people were worried that maybe the drag might get in between me and my message, I think in the end I was proved right because I think more people have clicked on that and listened to that speech because of the visual of this sort of shiny drag queen that, 
you know, on this stage with these little handsome male actors standing behind her <laughs> than I would have if I was just wearing a shirt and a pair of pants. And you know what I think is important about it is one of the arguments that we're constantly having in Queerland is about – you know, our, our cultural triumph really in the West and assimilation and whether we've had to change and how we should have to comport ourselves. And I think it's really important to emphasize at all times that we are being assimilated, I guess, but we are being assimilated on our own terms. We do not have to change who we are. You did not change who you were when you gave this very important speech. Um, you went in there as you and gave it as you and people had to deal. And that's our exactly. only offer to the to the wider culture. I think that often, you know, a lot of gay people will sometimes sort of complain about drag queens and, you know, all that people why we're presenting this image all the time. But my argument always is, you know, I didn't get involved in the sort of fight for equality and all that only for us then amongst ourselves to decide that there are acceptable gays and unacceptable gays. I mean, how I choose to present myself is absolutely nobody's business except my own. And if your you know, delicate sensibilities and you know, your ideas of what's male and female are so delicate and so important to you that you can't handle a man in a dress, well... You know, really, I have no time for you. <laughs> and, and, you know, just like I used to do drag, there is like a shamanistic thing about a drag queen that, that in, the, in those priestly, draggy robes, you can speak truths to power. Absolutely. I mean, I think in, in, in nearly every culture around the globe and throughout millennia, you always find an element of drag, and it's often the sort of the witch doctor or the shaman and all of that. You know, there's a real power in being a third gender. So, and I think you know, the, the, the way that people get so upset you know, by a man putting on a dress just speaks to the power of it. So I'm all for it. Well put. Well put. So bring us up to date on the situation now. Are you still being sued by these homophobic pieces of shit? Well, technically I am. But I think you know, my legal team would say that in reality, no. Because what's happened here is that, you know, it, it rumbled on for – Two, you know, eight weeks or more, the story kept on taking different turns, and it, it was this, you know discussed in Parliament. It was discussed in the European Parliament. There was, you know, ministers had to make you know statements on it. Uh, now they're having discussions about changing the defamation laws, about the possibility of changing the broadcasting regulations. You know, it became this huge thing, and even you know politicians and members of Parliament that who lined up to sort of. You know, well, many of the lined up just call these people homophobes under parliamentary privilege. You can say anything you want on the, house, on the floor of the parliament. And, but others, even ones who would have disagreed with me somewhat and said that I shouldn't have used the word homophobe, they all then follow that up very quickly, saying, but these people who are journalists and so forth shouldn't be running to solicitors' letters and defamation laws to protect themselves. So I think after all of that, it's been a massive PR disaster for the homophobes, and therefore, at this case, it will be, you know, pretty unlikely that they will push ahead with the case. Now, they won't officially tell me that they're dropping it, but I think probably what's going to happen is I just won't hear from them again. You know what it reminds me of? Every time now in the United States, uh, a high school, public high school or public middle school, the administration discriminates against a queer student, outs a lesbian kid to her parents, refuses to let a queer kid come to prom with the woman, the girl's friend she wants to bring to prom, blocks the formation of a GSA. Every time this happens, they do this with this expectation that nobody gives a shit about these queer kids. We can abuse these queer kids with absolute impunity. And what I think happened here was these motherfuckers thought, who's this fucking drag queen? 
We're going to shut exactly right. We're going to shut her down. We're going to shut her up. We can threaten her with impunity because who's going to come to the defense of some fucking drag queen? And it blew their minds when the whole world came. To, it blew their minds when you had the temerity to come to your own defense so eloquently. But then, then the whole world like rallied around you, and all of Ireland rallied around you. Yeah, the response has been amazing and really heartening. And I think that's exactly right. They totally misread the public mood and the situation. And they also thought that this bloody drag queen has no voice of her own. And they misread that situation, too. They think we can only lip sync, and it ain't true. Yeah. So there's also been a call for some sort of First Amendment in Ireland, that you may be ultimately responsible for bringing kind of American-style free speech protections to Ireland. Well, at the moment, there are two prongs to that. One is that there are broadcasting regulations here and that all broadcasters have to abide by. And at the moment, they say that you cannot cause you know, undue offense. That's one of the many things. And it's that provision that is seriously being looked at now to be changed, because if you just took out the word offense, it would make things much easier. Um, however, then the other side of it is the defamation law, and that would be much more complex um, as it stands on paper, it says that you can, you can say anything you want as long as you can defend it by saying it's, it's honest opinion, that you have this honestly held opinion. And so on paper, I should be able to argue that it's my honestly held opinion that they're a bunch of homophobes. <laughs> but it has proven in court to be extremely difficult to use that defense because you need to be able to prove that your honestly held opinion is based on verifiable facts. So all of these things in court just become very difficult. So they are now looking also at the possibility of massaging that legislation to make it easier and to use that defense. And they should. It actually was kind of shocking. I didn't know anything about these laws in Ireland. Ireland is, you know, Ireland is a, a nation of thinkers and speakers and writers. Uh, and to think that Ireland would have these kinds of constraints on thought and speech is mind-blowing. Yeah, and... To take a defamation case here is extremely expensive, and whether your case is strong or weak, you know, it favors the rich. A rich person can just threaten you with a defamation case, and it can really stifle debate, and that is where the real problem is here. So it tends to be that it's only rich people that have recourse to the courts, and in this case, this particular um, Catholic lobby group, the Iona Institute, has deep pockets that stretch all the way to the United States of America. We are exporting our religious anti-gay bigots and bigotry because it isn't getting much play here now anymore. Yeah. They're, not, they're not having much success, so they're going after people in Uganda, in Nigeria, in Russia, and in Ireland. Yeah, it turns out. <laughs> but they didn't see you coming. <laughs> and I want to thank you. And again, listeners, go to YouTube, uh, look up Panty's Noble Call at the Abbey Theater, uh, Google Panty Bliss and Dan Savage and Slog, and you'll see what I've written about it. Um, it's so uh, lovely to talk to you, Panty. Thanks for jumping on and the phone with too. us. And uh, for anybody in my audience who may be going to Dublin or going to Ireland this summer uh, on vacation, tell us quickly about your bar and where they can see you perform. I have a bar in Dublin city centre called Panty Bar, and uh, I perform there every weekend when I'm not off with one of my shows travelling. So uh, you'll usually find me there most weekends. Thanks so much. Thank you, Dan. Hi, Dan. I am a 23-year-old straight female from a very liberal town in a very red state, and my question relates to coming out. 
I am in a polyamorous relationship with my partner of four years. We opened our relationship about a year ago, and it's been really, really wonderful for both of us. No, no complaints there. I'm starting to see somebody else uh, who I think has potential to become a separate serious partner as well, aside from my main partner. My closest friends know that I'm in an open relationship and they're all really, really supportive. My question is though, should I come out to my less close friends and my relatives as well as being in a poly relationship? Not really totally comfortable talking about my sexuality with those people. I'm especially torn about coming out to my family. I feel like my mother, who's really supportive and open-minded, might feel like I was forced into an open relationship by my partner just because he's the dude, you know, when it was really more for me because my libido is higher than his. And I really don't feel like discussing my libido with my mother. I would be okay mostly just telling my friends and acquaintances, but I don't want the, you know, secret, if you will, to get back to my family and then have them make a big deal out of it because it was something that I was hiding from them. Um, it's really been bothering me, this whole thing. Um, don't feel like I don't like feeling that I'm hiding something from people. And I feel like my partnership is an example of, you know, a really successful polyamorous relationship that the polyamory community would benefit in a small way by us being out. I also don't want to lie if my relationship with this new person does become serious and call him just a friend when he's more than that. Both of my partners are supportive of whatever decision I make. And they've not really been super helpful in me coming to a decision. I've spoken in the past about running our parents on a need-to-know basis. And I think that it would be terrific if more people were out about being poly, if more people in successful open relationships or monogamous relationships were out about it to friends and family uh, in an age-appropriate and socially appropriate manner. Because there's a lot of people out there in successful monogamous or open relationships whose friends and families all believe that there's no such thing as a successful monogamish or open relationship because most people in them are invested in being perceived to be monogamous. That is social monogamy versus sexual monogamy. Not sexually monogamous but they are socially monogamous and they don't want to deal with the stigma or the fallout or the grief or the drama that their parents or extended families or friends might create if they were just open. So that does contribute to ignorance about people in open relationships to the stigma attached to them because we tend to only hear about them when they fail. If you and your boyfriend you know, had a three-way and you broke up as a result, that would come out and then everyone goes, oh, look, you, know, you, you just can't risk it. Anybody who ever has a three-way, they break up. And you don't want to contribute to that. You want poly relationships to be perceived to be healthy. People in healthy functioning poly relationships need to be out. That's it. I'm in favor generally of running your parents on a need-to-know basis about your sex life. At this stage, do they need to know? You're seeing this person. This person may be more than a friend at some point. Isn't now. You can kick that can, kick his can down the road a little bit and have that convo with your mother when he's been incorporated into your life romantically in such a way that he is a partner who deserves that kind of respect and deference from your family, more than a friend, and your family needs to know. And then you can have that convo. And the assumptions you're worried about your mother making, that you were forced into this, you can have that convo with her too. You can talk about your libido with your mother. You can. That's fine. Particularly if your mother backs you into a corner and forces you to come to the defense of the man you love, your primary partner. If she insinuates that he's manipulating you, he's some sort of Svengali 
who's manipulated you into this because he wants to fuck everything, you can say, actually, no, mom, it's me. I have a higher libido than he does. This is a way to make our relationship work for the both of us and I'm happy. Do you want to keep asking me questions? Your mother will say no at that stage if you have the sort of sex-negative closed parent that it sounds like you might. Hi, Dan. This is in response to the submissive girl from episode 384. One trick that many of my friends and I use, specifically on FetLife.com, is to include a disclaimer in our profiles. So what you do is you spell out a few hard limits about communicating and stick to them without exception. For instance, I won't respond to you if you use coarse language or ask me a question about myself or your message will get deleted. We found that that eliminates about two-thirds of the people who message you because if they aren't paying attention to what you've written, they aren't worth your energy. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to episode 384 and the submissive woman who's wondering how to deal with men behaving badly. I'm a sub in my mid-30s and have had recent experience meeting men on both OkCupid and FetLife, some of whom think submission is a foregone conclusion rather than a choice. I want to tell this woman and all the self-possessed, intelligent submissives out there, there is no reason to take shit from anyone. We wouldn't do it in our professional lives or in our friendships, so why would we tolerate disrespect or condescension in our sex lives? When someone bothers me on set life, I block him. I've told Dom straight up that as a grown woman, I find names like cutie and sweetie insulting and infantilizing. I've told Dom to demand I stay on the phone too long that I'm going to hang up now, and then I do it. One guy who became abusive on OKC after I told him it wasn't okay to dictate what I wear on a first date, got some advice on how to educate himself, and then I reported him. Not all Doms are douchebags, not even close but the ones who are get away with it because no one calls them on their shit. Even worse, they behave inappropriately and are rewarded for it. We have a responsibility to ourselves and to each other, so please don't let the ignorance and disrespect slide. Speak up for yourself. Hi, Dan. Uh, this is in response to episode 384 in which the young caller um, who lost her mother spoke of the great difficulty she was having when trying to meet new partners after the death of her mother. My mother also passed away. I was 15 years old. She was 40, and it was devastating. Every light social interaction that is so characteristic of adolescence was difficult for me. It was a reminder that I did not have the privilege of the freedom that children who had their parents had. And so I wanted to say to the caller to give herself time to know that it will take a while for that wound to heal and that perhaps she not try to date right now, but that she give herself more time, maybe even a year um, to experience that grief because not only has she lost her mother, but she has lost a sense of who she is in the world and the developing who that new person is already at this critical time when she's trying to establish her adult identity is a difficult process. So caller, take time, take time for yourself, take time with friends, take time with your family, be patient with yourself and know that that adult self will form and that you will once again feel at ease dating right now may not be the time. Best of luck to you. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. 
Hump, my amateur porn festival, is out on the road, out touring the country. It comes this week to Washington, D.C. For information about attending Hump, go to humptour.com. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Panty Bliss on Twitter at Panty, P-I-N-T-I, Bliss. Also follow Dr. Marty Klein on Twitter at Dr. Marty Klein. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the techs have the at risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.